0: Welcome to Pod Defend New Zealand.
1: I'm speaking directly to all New Zealanders today.
0: It's a political podcast where we chat about issues affecting Kiwis. Cases of COVID 19 to report in managed isolation in New Zealand. We talk to Kiwis from all sides of the political aisle. What has the government delivered? Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Steve O'Ealy, and we hope you enjoy our show. Today on Pod Defend New Zealand, we have Jamie White. Jamie is a former philosophy lecturer, currency trader and management consultant. He has written books and newspaper columns about reasoning and politics. He was the former leader of the ACT Party and has both socially and economically liberal viewpoints. Today we talk about his views, in particular, freedom of speech. We hope you enjoy it. I do understand that you were involved with the ACT party. Can you just give me a bit of a background as to your, I guess, your professional background first and then how you got involved in politics? Sure.
1: Well, I grew up in Auckland in a neighbourhood. Well, if I say Howick, which is what we used to call it, uh, that will be misleading because Howick has now changed a lot. It's really nothing like modern Howick. So I grew, I grew up there, went to the local schools, and then I sort of at Auckland University studying philosophy. And I had well what people would now call libertarian ideas. I mean, I didn't really think of myself as a libertarian, but I had those kind of ideas. And I was interested in politics. And so this is 1984, I guess, or late 83 maybe. And the New Zealand Party emerged. This was a Bob Jones started the New Zealand Party.
0: Is that, a, is that a forerunner to the New Zealand First Party? No, not at all.
1: No, no, God, I'm really teaching you something here. You're so young. <laughs> no, the history of it is that Bob Jones had been a big supporter of uh, the National Party. He believed in free markets and all that kind of thing, and, and the National Party, had turned under Muldoon, had turned completely against that. We had a totally state-dominated economy, and Bob Jones was hostile to this, and he fell out with Muldoon, who he had, I think, been friendly with. And he started a party, a new political party called the New Zealand Party. It had, you know, very economically liberal policies. And it got, within just a few months, it got up to 15% support in the polls. And this was before MMP, before proportional representation. Muldoon panicked and called a snap election. It's great footage of him calling the snap election. You can still find it on YouTube. He's totally pissed when he does it. He's in Parliament. He comes out. He's (laughs) utterly hammered. It's really great. Um, And you can anybody could tell. You you Google it. He's slurring his speech. It's uh, it's amazing. I was very sympathetic to the ideas of the New Zealand Party, and I liked Bob Jones. I thought he was a character, and so I joined up. I was 19, and I went down to the. I was where I lived was in the Pakaranga electorate, and this was one of the electorates they thought they had a chance of winning. And I went down to the first meeting of the party I in some kind of hall somewhere, and there was the candidate the, for the New Zealand party, a woman who became famous in New Zealand for a variety of reasons later, called Josephine Grierson. I don't know if you've ever encountered her. You may have encountered a daughter. She won New Zealand's top model. Anyway, Josephine, as that suggests to you, was very glamorous, very, very beautiful woman. And she had; she was young to be doing this. She was, uh, I think, 24, and she had just returned from Oxford University, where she'd done a degree. And you know, I thought, God, this party's even better than I thought. <laughs> it's really a fantastic political party, and I and I made friends with Josephine, um, and we've been friends ever since. That's how I got into politics. But but then I dropped it. Then I, you know, that, what happened, by the way, with the New Zealand Party? They said they had this, very, this policy agenda. They didn't win any seats at the election. But then the Labour Party that came in under um, Lange, David Longy and, uh, more importantly, Roger Douglas, the finance minister, they basically executed all the policies that the New Zealand Party had had. And um, Bob Jones said, well, I've got what I wanted. And he disbanded the party. I think the New Zealand Party only existed for about a year altogether, uh, but it brought about this radical it contributed to bringing about this radical change of policy in New Zealand. We went from being the most state-controlled economy in the democratic world to perhaps the most liberal uh, economy in the democratic world. That transformation happened in five years, something like that. It was astonishing. Anyway, I also kind of just Okay, that's all right. And I went off to Cambridge in England to do a PhD in philosophy. Yeah, I stayed in philosophy for a while. I got a job at Cambridge. Um, and then I, I I got married, and I realized I'd never be able to afford to buy a house. Academic salaries then were at the absolute lowest point in, in the history. They've improved since. I mean, it's not great still, but uh, they were absolutely shocking then. And, and so I left... And I went into, I left academia and I started working as a management consultant. And then I, while I was doing that, I wrote a book, um, the one that you've read, Crimes Against Logic, although it was first published in, in uh, the UK under the name uh, Bad Thoughts. Uh, Crimes Against Logic was when they sold the rights to an American uh, publisher. So that's in New Ze- They published it all around the world, so in New Zealand it's Crimes Against Logic. Well, what, in, what inspired you to write that book? Well, actually, it's a funny story. And a lot of what happens in my life happens this way. I don't actually do anything out of my own initiative. People just ask me to do things and I do them. A guy who's a friend of mine at my consulting firm, who actually went on to be the head of the firm, he's now the head of the firm. He was a bit bored too. And he started a, a publishing company with his wife. And of course, the problem when you start a new publishing company is you haven't got no, one, no, no good authors who will write for you. Why would they want to do that when they could write with Penguin or whoever it may be? So he was scraping around for authors. And I said, well, I've always had a book in me. So they said, go ahead and write it. They didn't give me any money, but I I wrote it. That was a surprising success. Uh, It just did a lot better than any of us thought it would. And I had moved to Singapore at that time. I was uh, working from the Singapore office, and I hated Singapore, and I hated consulting. And I'd just written this book that was reasonably successful. And so I did something completely stupid, it really was. Stupid. I quit <laughs> this very high paying job in Singapore in, in the hope of becoming a professional writer with no, no reason to believe it was possible except that this book had done all right. And I'll tell you a funny little story on the side. This is, this is a bizarre. I'm not a Christian or anything, but you would, you would have to believe in God if you... So I went into the office to quit and I told the head of the office that I was quitting. And you can imagine, I felt very nervous. I sort of step into nothing, and I got back to the place I was living at in Singapore, feeling a bit sick. And I opened up my emails, and there's an email from the comment editor of the Times in London, saying that he read my book, and he'd like me to contribute articles to, to the Times. And I thought, shit, that's you know. And it really was just when I got home from quitting. Uh, it was like my reward for having a bit of courage but uh anyway it it turned out that you can't i couldn't make a living writing uh i lived in new zealand for a few we moved back to new zealand and i tried to write from there and uh, then i so i had to go back into consulting and we ended up moving back to london and i was then working as the head of publishing at my consulting firm and i was writing a lot of articles in the newspapers i was writing for the You know, a bunch of English newspapers, mainly at that time, actually the Wall Street Journal. And I was publishing by then. I was publishing not so much about logic, but much more about free market economics and being liberal. And I got an email from somebody in the ACT Party in New Zealand. This would have been twenty, late twenty twelve, saying, "Will you come and be our keynote speaker for our annual conference?" So I said, "Yeah." And I went back and was held at Alan Gibbs's farm, you know, this sculpture park farm. It's an amazing thing. I don't know if you've ever seen it. You should look it up. It's, it's, it's astonishing. It's probably the best sculpture park in the world. So just getting a chance to go to that farm is almost worth it. So I, anyway, I, I went there. And I, gave, I, I gave my talk. And then afterwards, I was milling around. And some chap, I think, who, who shouldn't have said it, he said, so are the rumours true? I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said, yeah, that "You're being teed up to be the next leader of ACT," and I literally had no idea what he was talking about. But it turns out it was true because when I go back to London, Alan Gibbs uh, again—I don't sure if you know—or that he's the, he then at least was the main donor to the ACT party, and he'd helped to start it and so on. He had me over for dinner, and it was clear there was a kind of campaign underway to seduce me. And as it happened, I wanted to move back to New Zealand anyway. And so I I quit my job in London and I moved back to New Zealand. And then after a short campaign, I I got the leadership in February of 2014. Uh, And then John Key, who was the Prime Minister, called an early election that year because of the ASEAN meeting that was going to be held in Auckland. He wanted to have it before that. So it wasn't in November, it was in September. And I, I didn't do terribly well. I didn't get elected. David Seymour managed to win Epsom. So he, you know, the party survived... In Parliament. I quit as leader. He took over as leader. He had a terrible first term. I, I don't mean he did badly. I just mean he, he couldn't get the support up. And then obviously, you know what's happened now. He's done astonishingly well. Um, and, you know, Axe never had more MPs. And I, I think he's got the party into a fantastic position. I mean, the party had done well in the past, it always does better when it's in opposition. Being a minor party in a coalition is generally difficult. If you look around the world, minor parties and coalitions don't tend to thrive. But the, the other problem you ACT has always had is, if you think of the core ideas of most people in the ACT party, they believe in a lot of liberty on both social and
0: economic. Can you just elaborate on the, um, the liberal um, idea in the sense that um, I think most people, when you hear the word liberal, you're sort of thinking um, liberal in the terms of gay rights and... Um, you know, everyone being equal and that sort of thing. I don't think as many people understand um, what liberal means in an economic sense.
1: Well, it means the same thing, actually. It means, it's funny that people draw this distinction. So, All liberal means, what it basically means is that people should be free to do whatever they want. (laughs) Now, of course, that's constrained. And when we get to talking about free speech, I'll talk about what those constraints are. But basically the constraint is that if you don't, it's voluntarism. So if, if you do something that only affects you, you should be free to do it. If you do something with somebody else and the two of you agree to do it, and it only affects the two of you, you should be free to do it. That's the general principle that makes liberals uh, believe in gay rights. I mean, it's not the government should not tell you who you can and can't have sex with, provided it's voluntary, right? That's the idea. And what, so people that act in act. Believe that they also believe that that principle extends into economic issues. So, for example, I don't want to put words into the mouths of the current party. I'm just expressing my own views here. If you want to work, if if you and I contract and you're going to work for me for five dollars an hour, you should be free to. We should be free to enter into that contract. So, minimum wages violate the liberal principle. They say, the government says, no, you are not allowed to do that deal. In fact, the whole of labor law is a violation of this principle. It says you can only enter into employment contracts or agreements with each other for one party to employ the other if they meet certain conditions that we, the government, are specifying. Tariffs on imports are an example. I want to buy something uh, from overseas. The government says, well, if you do buy it from a foreigner and not from a local person, we're going to tax you. Uh, now, New Zealand's great we don't have many tariffs. But, but you see, that's, so the general point of, of, of liberalism, we just would extend, we, we think it apply, should apply both to economic and what people call social uh, issues. In fact, I don't really see much of a distinction between economic and social issues. I think everything's social. Economic interactions are social. Why should the government tell people who they can and cannot work for any more than they tell them who they can and cannot have sex with?
0: Going back to your comment about the... Um the minimum wage thing, um, I guess the, the counter-perspective to that is, say someone had just immigrated to New Zealand and was desperate for work um, and potentially not that well-educated and they get sort of convinced to take this job where they're only getting paid $5 an hour, potentially that's not really... Um, even if two adults consent and agree agree to that um, contract, it's not um, potentially it's one person taking advantage of
1: another another one of the formative events in my early life that got me into politics was the 1985 campaign which was ultimately successful to legalize homosexuality it was a great public debate about it at the time and one of the arguments often made was that this idea of consent that you know so people voluntarily entering homosexual sex was that of course it's it's not really consent um in many cases because the people involved don't really don't really understand what's involved, and they they might be 17. This was the other thing. The age of consent was a big issue. And, of course, one of the things that a lot of people, an implicit idea was, well, homosexual sex is so wrong that anybody who consents to it is clearly in some way confused and therefore it's not real consent. This was an idea blowing around. It really was. And, I mean, if you take the, the example of the the person, the immigrant, let's say, or refugee. That's probably a better example. They may not speak, they have rather rudimentary English, and they may be quite unskilled. And if you have a high minimum wage, as New Zealand does, it may be very difficult for them to find work because they can't provide anything that valuable. You know, An employer won't find their work that valuable. And it's not clear that you're doing them a favour by banning them from getting work at a lower pay level, because one of the best ways to get integrated, to learn the language, to learn the customs, to get involved in a country, is to get a job. And even if you get a job on a a low uh, uh, pay, that's better than being kept out of work. By the way, if you want me to give you the soft version of this, I would say that what you should do, what the government should do, is get rid of the minimum wage and then supplement the incomes of people with low wages out of taxation because that way those people they get to live a minimally decent life right? they've got enough money to, but they don't get kept out of the job market they get a chance to have a job that would be the more humane approach than a minimum wage
0: It sort of um, leads into the idea of UBI which I don't know if you're familiar I assume you're familiar with
1: Actually I'll send you a link to my I wrote an article about it recently quite a thorough one one thing, it's completely impossible, by the way, from an economic point of view. The tax rate to fund it would have to be so high that it would just completely stifle economic activity. One of the most astounding things about this whole UBI debate is people keep saying that there have been experiments in it. It's rubbish. They're not trials of it. Here's what happens in those trials. They take a tiny number of people and they, they give them a universal basic income, right? funded by taxes on the entire population who are not getting a universal basic income. So the tax rate, the marginal tax rates faced by the people in the experiment on the universal basic income are way lower than they would be if you applied the universal basic income to the whole country. So when you make observations about their, their incentives to work, right, in the experiment, they're bogus because they're not facing the same marginal tax rates in the experiment as they would if the policy were applied nationally. I have no idea how the people who design these experiments are not ashamed of themselves and run out of town.
0: I I think we'll leave the UBI thing for now because I know that if we keep talking about this that we could carry on for another hour. Yeah. (laughs) So I I guess maybe we should um, talk about the I guess, the the central um, point of today's conversation, which is, can you give us a little bit of a background into your perspective on freedom of speech and where you think things are headed in New Zealand?
1: Well, where things are headed in New Zealand is very bad. You've got a very popular prime minister who wants to bring in serious restrictions on freedom of speech under the general category that's been blown, everyone's talking about all around the world, hate speech, right? We, we mustn't have hate speech. Now, let me start from a philosophical point that was made by a philosopher called J.L. Austin, who was at Oxford in the, I think his most famous in the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, that kind of period. You know, he wrote a very famous, I think it was an article, not a book, called Doing Things With Words. And he made the point that when you speak, when you say things, you're not just... Expressing ideas, you're often doing something. Um, you might be insulting somebody. You might be congratulating somebody. You might be getting married, right? You make vows. You, you can. You, you speaking is an action, and you can do all sorts of things with words. Now, because you can do things with words, you can do bad things with words, and you can do things that I think should get you in trouble. So, for example, you could incite a riot. You could incite murder. You could defame somebody. These are all things you can do with words. And quite rightly, um, there are criminal or civil uh, sanctions for that. So we're not, we've not got some blanket rule that you can say whatever you want under any circumstances, doing whatever you want. So why, if I, if I go along with that, you know, I think there should be, for example, defamation laws. I think it's fine that people can get sued for slander. Why am I against hate speech laws? Well, the reason is, here's probably the most obvious difference between defamation and hate speech. In a defamation case, I may have defamed the person, but I can always get off if I can prove that what I said was true. So truth is always a defense in a defamation case. It isn't under hate speech laws. Under hate speech laws, there's no truth defense. That's the problem, right? I mean, the reason we want free, we, 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 there should be restrictions on what you can do when you're making statements. You can't incite murder. You can't. But there should be no restrictions on which ideas you can express. The idea that an idea is in itself hateful, I think that's wrong as well. Look at—I uh, mean, they look. Seem they're going to in New Zealand restrict uh, criticism of religions. <sighs> I am a lifetime atheist. I think most religions are the ideas in them are absurd. I've got a lot of time for church attendance and all that kind of stuff. I think the the rituals and the community and all that stuff very valuable, but the ideas are ridiculous. Now, am I going to get in trouble for saying that? If I say it in a really mocking way, am I being hateful? I mean, is, is Richard Dawkins one of the greatest, I think he's a great man, I think he's a really brilliant. I mean, his contributions to biology and evolutionary theory are astounding. Would he get arrested in New Zealand for the kind of stuff he says about religion? We, we can't have this because we must allow, <laughs> we must allow ideas to be expressed so that we can discover if they're true or false. The, the foundation of liberalism, I think, is, so. I'm going to sound like a philosopher now, but I'll explain this, is epistemic humility. Now, epistemic just means to do with knowledge, and humility means humility. So we we don't know everything. We are profoundly ignorant. We still, we're learning a lot, science has advanced a lot, but we humans have a very Uh, slight understanding of the world we live in and progress requires that we be allowed to express and test ideas and one of the things that's going on at the moment is that what you might call the progressive left believe themselves to attained a kind of historically unique level of moral understanding so that anybody who disagrees with them is really a bad person, and their ideas, they may be confused, but their ideas must be stifled because all they're going to do is lead people astray because the truth has been discovered. That's kind of the idea. And, you know, occasionally this idea does get the better of people. I mean, it got the better of the Catholic Church. By the way, I don't think it really does. I'm not sure they really believe it, to be honest. I I think that what's going on here is just it's a stitch-up, right? So they want to make it illegal to say things. they want to make the intellectual competition against the law. It's, a, it's an ideological version of economic protectionism. So you say, just like economic protectionism taxes or bans certain, the competition. Right? So you know'm domestic I'm an American domestic steelmaker. I don't want to have to compete with cheaper Chinese steel. so I get the government to impose tariffs on these imports. I'm somebody who believes one thing. I make my livelihood and I get ahead in life and all by that idea being the dominant one. So I try to get the system rigged so that other ideas are at a structural disadvantage. They can't get expressed, they're unfashionable. It's just an attempt to stifle intellectual competition.
0: I have to say I'm really on the fence about it. I don't like the idea of any... I'm a massive believer in freedom of speech, but... When you say the words "freedom of speech," now it almost sounds like the moment you say it, it's like you're defending people who are racists or saying genuinely hurtful things. It's it's a really difficult, it's a really challenging one because I think there should be consequences for someone getting up in a public domain and saying, say for argument's sake, white people are superior to black people and. Black people should be below us in the hierarchy or or however they want to put it. I think there should be consequences to that. Um, And in a modern society, there already are consequences to that. But then, to me, it's a completely different argument to banning people from even saying stuff. I think there are already modern world consequences to saying racist things. And someone who goes ahead and says that is probably not going to get speaking rights in many other places. But it is quite a complicated topic.
1: I think the important thing is to distinguish between social consequences and legal consequences. So, for example, I have a friend, well, ex-friend. He's terribly rude. Uh, No, I don't mean, actually, he's very politically correct, but he's also extremely obnoxious. And if you go out for drinks with him and a bunch of people who he hasn't met before, you know, you probably have to be taking some of them aside and apologising on his behalf and all that kind of thing, right? Now, I don't think that he should go to jail for that. But he does pay a social price. People don't want to hang out with him. And that's fine. Got, that's, that's how it is. And so if you hold obnoxious views of the kind that you're talking about, let's say racist ones, I've got no problem with people paying a price for that. I mean, for example, I, I have a friend who, who I dumped because he's out and out racist and I won't have it. I don't want to associate with him. And so he's lost a friend that's that's fine but the idea that the state should ban these things and they come with a criminal penalty that's absolutely terrifying partly because things like hate they're very vague concepts and if you start writing laws with these incredibly vague concepts in them you start getting arbitrary rule you no longer live under the rule of law you live under dis- the discretion of the authorities And so someone will deem that what I said was hateful or not hateful. I mean, who who can – it depends if you're on the side with the authorities, right? If the authorities kind of like you, they go, oh, that wasn't hateful. They don't like you, it was hateful. I mean, hateful, geez, you know, do you really think that that's a proper legal concept? Laws are normally written in vague ways, and then the courts interpret them. You go through a lot of cases. I I don't think you could ever get a clear legal notion of what is and what isn't a hateful comment. So this leads us into – you know, it really – I've got no problem with people paying a price for it. I just don't want it in the law. This should all be the kind of stuff that gets sorted out in the rough and tumble of everyday life between free people. They're going to have to hang out with a whole lot of half-witted rednecks if they want to go on like that. That's the price they pay. That's fine.
0: It, it's a slippery slope too. I think that's probably, the, uh, to me, the biggest issue with it is that I think if the law truly was only punishing people that was genuinely inflammatory, genuinely hateful, we're talking KKK sort of stuff, it probably wouldn't be that bad, but the reality is is it's down to interpretation. And that's where it gets dangerous because then people start saying very mild things and potentially are um,
1: up for criminal charges. It's almost impossible to formulate the law in a way that only covers the cases that you want to cover, right? And so then you are having to just hope that the authorities won't use it in other ways. There was a famous case in Scotland. I don't know if you heard of it. There was a comedian, not that funny. Actually, his name calls himself Count Dankula. Anyway, he did this. He, his girlfriend was very um, woke, very politically correct. And she had a pet dog and she was away on a business trip or something. And when she was away, He trained the dog, the little dog, to do a Hitler salute, lift its hand up, to a Hitler salute. Whenever he said the words, burn the Jews. So he'd say, burn the Jews, and the dog would do a Hitler salute. It's just kind of crazy. He, by the way, is no Nazi. He just thought this was an outrageous joke, which it is. It's an outrageous joke. And he posted it online, obviously believing it to be a reasonably innocent kind of a joke. Anyway, he got prosecuted under the Scottish Hate speech laws, and um, he got—he was—he was facing prison, but he got off. He got—he had to pay. We didn't get off. He got convicted, and he had—I think—he had to pay an eight hundred pound fine. But it really is just a joke. It's clearly a joke. Is it a good joke? I don't know. But you know, I mean, are we really going to have judges deciding whether jokes are good and people? I mean, this is kind of this is nuts, right? that's where we're
0: headed comedians talk about this all the time there's quite a few comedians i can think of ricky gervais being one of them saying there is a huge 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 difference between joking about something like that and actually actively believing it and preaching it um some of the stuff that ricky gervais has joked about is outrageous but if you know that it's a joke
1: ricky gervais is he supported um Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn, Ricky Gervais is way to the left. I don't know if you know this. His politics are way to the left. His sense of humor is outrageous, and he's willing to say, by the way, this isn't a left-wing, right-wing thing especially. it's Woke people are on the left, yes, but a lot of people on the left are not woke. The kind of guys who are proper communists or Marxists, they're obsessed with class, not identity, and they tend not to like all this stuff. In New Zealand, you've got that guy, what's he called, Bomber Bradbury or whatever his name is, he runs the Daily, he's a really hard left guy. He's written a lot of mean things about me, but I actually have quite a high opinion of him. He's a a hard left guy, but he's very worried about all this free speech stuff. Because remember, free speech should be something the left cared about, because they thought they needed it to challenge the right-wing establishment. I mean, one thing it tells you, by the way, you know who's in charge, right? You know who's the current establishment by who wants to stifle speech? Whenever they say, oh, poor us, poor us, no. You're the guy who's trying to stifle speech. You must be in charge. Um, you must want to – it's the weak, it's the ones who need their voice to be heard who want free speech. And so I'm saying it's not a left-wing, right-wing thing. I know plenty of people on the right who also want to stifle speech. For example, flag-burning. Yeah, this is an issue. In America, some people try to criminalise flag burning. It's always right-wingers. So it's just people who, who don't like competition, but we shouldn't go down there. And I mean, New Zealand has been pretty good on freedom of speech uh, historically. You can say pretty much what you want in New Zealand and you face social problems but not legal ones. And I, I would be very sorry to see these laws pass. Um, I saw a comment from
0: um, – it was Jordan Peterson actually – And I think it was about UK hate speech laws. And if you actually read the quotation as to what's deemed hate speech, it's words are deemed hateful in the viewpoint of the victim, which basically is saying that it comes down to someone's personal opinion. So in our conversation that we're having right now, if there were hate speech laws in New Zealand and you said something to me that I considered hateful, I could... I guess, theoretically, go to the cops and say, you said this and I felt it was hateful. Yes, that's hate no, speech. We have, that
1: is the British situation. So it's whether or not something... So if I attack you and you believe that I attacked you because of your race or because of your sexuality or because of your sex, then I did. That's it. There's no test. People get very concerned about certain issues like hate, let's say, identity-based hate, or rape, they decide to throw all legal principle out the window. During the 2014 election campaign that I, you know, when I was leader of ACT, the um, former leader of the Labour Party before Jacinda, to Andrew Little, sorry, Andrew Little was uh, the leader, was the law, legal, you know, the spokesman on legal issues for the Labour Party. And his signature policy during that election was that in rape cases, once it had been established that sex had taken place, the, the onus of proof to establish consent would be on, on the, the alleged rapist. That's to say, suppose you, know, suppose you had sex with a woman and she said you'd raped her and you admitted you'd had sex, but you said it was consensual. You would have to prove that it was consensual, otherwise you'd go to prison. Now, how are you going to do that? I mean, in almost all cases, you can't possibly do it, right? It was just the two of you in the room. So what they're saying is that the burden of proof is on the accused. He wanted to shift the burden of proof to the accused. So no presumption of innocence, presumption of guilt in rape cases. It's an astounding thing to suggest, right? It is an amazing violation of general legal principle. But people do this, you know, when they get all fired up about an issue and now in the UK, because they're all fired up about this identity stuff, um, they get rid of any requirements for proof and and certain accusations. Uh,
0: Jamie, that's all we have time for today. Thanks heaps for coming on our show, Pod Defend New Zealand. Good luck. Good luck to you. That was Jamie White. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Pod Defend New Zealand. See you next time. Thanks for tuning in to Pod Defend New Zealand. You can find us on Twitter at NZ underscore pod or Instagram at nz underscore pod. If you're feeling extra generous, please give us
1: 5 stars on the podcast app. Kia ora.